Today's scripture comes from Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, for us to redeem us all from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Sweet. Glad y'all made it here through the snow. Um, before we get into the word, let's, uh, let's open with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that so often we feel hopeless. We feel exhausted, discouraged, and alone. We long for a better future. This Christmas season, we remember that in your son, hope has come. Thank you that hope is coming again. And as we listen to your word now, please pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts that the hope of Jesus would shine. God, we don't just want to hear words. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, and we pray as a congregation, as this word is being declared, God, that you would magnify the hope of Jesus in our hearts to shine. We need your help, Father. I need your help. We bring so much darkness into your presence. Shine your glorious hope anyway. Have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I think of hope, I think of my dad. That's him on the screen there in between the two tall kids he has. At my age, he'd been a political prisoner in Ethiopia and Somalia. He had cuts on him that I didn't realize until my teen years were from torture. It baffles me how much suffering a person can tolerate when they have something beautiful to look forward to. A better life for their not yet existent children. Uh, work opportunities that match the talents and gifts that they've been given. Whether you come from extreme persecution and poverty like my dad, or grew up in suburbia like me, psychologists find that the most powerful character trait that maps to a flourishing life remains the same regardless of circumstance. That character trait is hope. There are lots of ways that we could define hope for our time here, uh, but the way we're going to define it today is what we trust for future joy and peace, right? Hope is forward-looking faith. In this Advent, we've been meditating on how Jesus came in history and how that influences us and our hope, and that's, that's wonderful, but today we're going to look to the future. We're going to see that the day of Jesus' coming brings hope for all mankind. Paul encourages his original audience and us to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll unplack that uh, verse in three points. Uh, the first is that hope has consequences. The second is that hope has a name, and thirdly, walk with blessed hope. Hope has consequences. Hope has a name. Walk with blessed hope. First, hope has consequences. 
And we can focus on the first half of this verse that we'll be sitting in uh, to do that. So waiting for our blessed hope, which begs the question, what are you waiting for? There's a reason that Paul has to emphasize waiting for our blessed hope to the original audience he's writing to. So he's writing to these Christians in Crete, which is an island off the coast of, of Greece. And Jesus was calling those Christians in Crete back then to be agents of, of reconciliation and love to the people around them, changing their city. But instead of them changing their city for the better, their city was changing them for the worse. I think Crete and Vancouver, if, if we're honest, they pose really similar challenges to the soul. Earlier in that letter, Paul, Paul writes, quoting a poet from Crete, who's talking about all the things messed up about Crete. He talks about how leaders take advantage of the people that are under their care. He talks about how neighbors lie and bend and warp the truth to serve their own agenda. Crete marched to the drumbeat of power, sex, and money. Watching people who live like that step on you on their way up the social ladder, it hurts. And there's two things that we can do with that hurt. The first is that we, we confront that selfish might with humble love. And the other option is that we fall in line. We get seduced by the hopes of power and pleasure. We adopt the hopes of the strong and play the game. Christians are called, not just in Crete, but here today, us sitting in our seats, we're called to not trust in the ways of the world around us, but to hope for a better hope. If I'm reflecting on the similarities and trying to map this onto books I read in English class or movies I watched, I think of The Great Gatsby. I don't know if you ever read that back in high school or, or saw the Leonardo DiCaprio rendition, but basically it's a movie about a horde of privileged people hoping that wealth and status and love will fix their pain. Jay Gatsby is one of those characters, right? He, he starts out coming from nothing, and then he launches into some legal business schemes that make him a bunch of money, and he tries to cover up those schemes so that he can be accepted into the upper echelons of society. In order to do that, he makes a new identity for himself. And if he makes that new identity for himself, we'll read an excerpt about that from the book. I think this describes a lot of us today. So, so here's what he was doing when he made that new identity. James Gatz, that was really, or at least legally, his name. He changed it at the age of 17. I suppose he had the name ready for a long time, even then. His parents were shiftless and unsuccessful farm people. His imagination had never really accepted them as his parents at all. How many of us pick up pretty hopes to run away from paths that we deem ugly? He goes on, the, the truth was that Jay Gatsby of West Egg, Long Island, sprang from his platonic conception of himself. He had this big, lofty idea of who he was, and his identity sprang out of that. Who was that? He was a son of God. A phrase which, if it means anything, means just that. And he must be about his father's business, the service of a vast, vulgar, and meretricious beauty. He worshipped this big-time, jaw-dropping, superficial beauty. And what happened to his life because of his hopes? 
He invented just the sort of Jay Gatsby that a 17-year-old boy would be likely to invent. And this is, this is key for us. To this conception, he was faithful to the end. Gatsby is no different than the rest of us. He had hopes. He hoped in a big-time, jaw-dropping, superficial beauty. And there's something about hope that Jay of the Great Gatsby and Paul of the Bible both knew. It's that hope has consequences. Our hopes require our loyalty. And in the words of the text there, our faithfulness to the end. Whether it's sacrificing sleep for the early morning workout or refusing to eat out so that we can afford to see the world, our hopes shape our lives. James Gatz reinvented himself accordingly. He got the house and the cars and the friends and the way of talking that his hopes demanded. He was faithful to his big-time, jaw-dropping, superficial hopes to the end. You and I are no different. Our hopes require our loyalty. But that point comes with an implication. If your hope withdraws more from your soul than it deposits, your soul goes bankrupt. If your hopes take more than they give to your soul, your soul goes bankrupt. Jay Gatsby learned that the hard way. He wished for wealth and love to give more than it would take, and he was wrong. He hustled and lied to cram his life into this mold, and his longings looked like a party, and they were for a while. But ultimately, his false hopes killed him. Hopes has consequences. False hopes lead to death. I ask you again, what are you waiting for? Maybe you're thinking, Jacob, I read that book. Gatsby was killed by lying. He was killed by vain, opulent wealth being his desires. That's not me. I want to give my all for my family. I want to be become the best possible version of myself. I want to pour myself out for my community. His hopes were a curse, sure, but in the words of the passage, my hopes are a blessing. We don't need to look very far to realize that mere blessings are false hopes. Family is a blessing. But when family becomes our identity, how often does it lead to devastated, high-pressure, broken relationships? Personal growth, a blessing. Did you know that, that CEOs suffer depression at twice the rate of the average person you bump into on the street? People that have read the most self-improvement books and ascended to the highest heights of career often hate their lives more than the people they passed on the way up. Justice work, a blessing. How many discouraged and burnt out nonprofit workers do you know? Blessings are beautiful parts of life, but they don't have the power to be our hope in life. What's more is that false hopes don't just hurt us. This is really important in our Western culture of everything revolving around you. Our false hopes don't just hurt us. They hurt the people around us. False hopes of family cause us to place crushing expectations on our partners, on our kids, on our siblings. False hopes of justice turn serving the marginalized into a hollow performance art that harms the people that we claim we want to help. You know, I'm going to speak for myself for a moment. My false hope is often success. 
right? I want to be a financial hero for my, my wife, my coworkers, uh, even my church. And hoping in success feels great when you're successful. But when failure inevitably comes, I'm crushed by anxiety. And then I just try to distract myself with Netflix, and that, that erodes me, sure. But you know who that really sucks for? My wife, who's trying to pull me back into the reality that I'm trying to escape from. And that, what, I get short with her? I, I'm, I'm mean? My false hopes, just in the same way that they cause me to close off from and, and wrong my wife, they, they also cause me to close off from and wrong God. We're all guilty of this. This is more than a self-help tip. Hope is more than a matter of, of happy and sad. Hope is also a matter of right and wrong. Yes, your false hopes make you anxious, insecure, and heartbroken. But, but false hope, it's also a sin against those around you and against God. The, the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, it shows the futility of false hope. King Solomon is, is a person who has lived your wildest dreams. Uh, he chased, and in a lot of ways, got wisdom and wealth and honor. Used a thousand different people in sexual conquests. After exhausting every worldly hope, here's what he concluded. Ecclesiastes 2.11 says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, vapor, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There is nothing to be gained from false hope. Take the lesson from Solomon or Jay Gatsby or any of your weary heroes. False hopes will demand everything and then leave us with nothing. Your human life is shaped by your hope. Broken hope, broken life, which leads to no hope, which leads to no life. Paul encourages the Christians in Crete to be not conformed to the world around them, but instead to wait for their blessed hope. Can I ask you again, what are you waiting for? What is your hope? Is it how enviable your family looks in the Christmas photo coming up this week? Is your hope getting promoted next year? Is it the escape you hope to find in the arms of someone you know you shouldn't? When your longings stop being shiny, what consequences are you and those around you left with? If you've made a, a good blessing into a false hope, can I encourage you, please turn from that before it destroys you. Church, thank God that he does not leave us hopeless. We've seen that hope has consequences. Let's look to our second point now. Hope has a name. Let's read the fullness of that verse again now. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. The hope of a Jesus follower is not a political party. The hope of a Jesus follower is not a full bank account. 
The hope of a Jesus follower is not even Christian morality. The hope of a Jesus follower is the perfect life, atoning death, grave-shattering resurrection, heavenly ascension, and glorious return of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We do not hope in a myth. We do not hope in a Christmas story. We hope in a real person. Titus 2.11 makes this abundantly clear. The grace of God appeared, it says, manifested in flesh on earth 2,000 years ago. Read historians living at that time that didn't even believe that Jesus was God, and they will tell you that Jesus appeared. They will also tell you that hundreds of people were tortured to death for the claim that they saw this once dead God-man once again alive. Our verse, Titus 2.13, repeats that word for Jesus really showing up to describe the blessed future hope of a Christian. Just like he did appear, he will appear again. Just like he showed up in the first, on the first Christmas, he will show up again. And man, our world needs this hope. I mean, look around. Mental health and opioid crises loom. I mean, climate change and lack of affordability have people too scared to even have kids because they're so devastated about the hope of the world. Our age is desperate for hope and the church must bring it. I'm a Christian. Uh, it, it's really hard for you to help people look forward to a hope if you are not looking forward to that hope. The hope of the church has always been the Son of God coming. And I love this, uh, this quote from Alexander McLaren talking about this hope of Jesus making all things new uh, for the ancient church. He says, the primitive church thought that, thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. Do we long for heaven? Absolutely. Will death usher Christians into the presence of God? You bet. But we don't long to be souls separated from our bodies. We await being resurrected, body and soul, in the presence of God. And all heaven's days start with one day, the day of the Lord. This is the hope of a Christian, the coming of the King. This will be a glorious day. I mean, Paul says in our text that when Jesus comes back, he's not coming in humility. The first time he came, very humble, manger. Then following that, a refugee fleeing Israel, humble as can be. But that's not what Jesus is going to be coming like next time. He is coming in glory. Now let's take a moment to, to consider glory together. I want you to close your eyes and take a deep breath in and breathe out. Take a deep breath in and breathe out one more time. Steady your hearts. Deep breath in and breathe out. Now keep breathing. Keep your eyes closed. But imagine with me, chew like you're eating something, your favorite thing. I don't know what that is, but what's the most scrumptious bite you've ever tasted? 
is a hearty steak, a sweet cake. Picture the warmest embrace you've ever felt from an older family member, partner, a child. What's the most breathtaking sight you've ever seen? Look to it now. Is it an ocean, a sunset, a smile? What's the most glorious joy you've ever known? Open your eyes. You've experienced many glorious things. But if we multiplied all of those experiences together, they would not add up to an atom in the ever-expanding universe that is the glory of God. Remember our definition of hope. Hope is what we trust for future joy and peace. It's forward-looking faith. Faith that what? It's forward-looking faith that we will experience glory and all these little glories, I mean, they're nice and they're good, but the, the glory of success, the glory of scintillating pleasure, the glory of a happy family, those are just little reflections of the ultimate glory. They're, all these glories are like a, a really bright lake on a sunny day, right? It's like it hits your eyes and it's a lot, but, but it's nothing compared to the sun. It's nothing compared to the sun. Could you imagine trying to hang the solar system on the power and the gravity of a shiny lake? That is what it is like to hang your soul on the hope of a tiny glory. It's a futile death sentence. And there are two ironies tucked in it. When we take a small glory and we make it an ultimate glory, there are two great ironies. The first is that small glories borrow from the ultimate glory. The Bible says that all glories on earth point to the creator God. Everything we hope for in creation should point us to the creator. And if we hope in creation more than the creator, what we're doing is we're scratching his signature off of his artwork. We're taking a counterfeit and robbing him of the credit that he's due so that we can live life on our own terms. False hopes are cosmic plagiarism. They're morally wrong. That's the first irony of making a small hope our ultimate hope. The second irony is that, believe it or not, the ultimate glory became a small glory for you. Let me say that again. The ultimate glory became a small glory for you. Let's look at the great reversal in the Christmas story of Luke 2 to see this on full display. So this is when Jesus is born. Luke 2 says this. And the Virgin Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel appeared to them. And this is our word glory. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What contrast between the gloriousness of God and the glorylessness of the manger. Imagine an army of angels erupted before you, gleaming, celestial, luminous, terrifying. What if the stars of the night sky were not millions of miles away from you, but in your face? Power that would incinerate you if not for mercy. What could cause such glory to appear? The source of all glory. These angels sing glory to God in the highest. They shine with the glory of the Lord. These fearsome angels borrow and reflect the glory of the one who sent them, the one whose good news they proclaim. So if they're borrowing his glory, how much glory does he have? It would make no sense for a opening act to get a better light show than the headliner. So he's coming with thunder, right? The verse reads, And the Virgin Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the inn. The one who deserves a robe and a throne gets cloths and a manger. The God who created and sustains matter became a single-celled zygote in a womb. The reason behind this great reversal is tucked into three words from this Christmas passage and our passage in Titus. Our hope in the manger is the great God and Savior, the Christ. Now we've seen how our false hopes, they leave us anxious and insecure and heartbroken. We've seen how our false hopes make us selfish and cold and sinful to one another. And we've seen how our false hopes are moral transgressions of cosmic plagiarism, stealing glory from God. Every one of us, then, has been both the wronged and the wrongdoer, the sinned against and the sinner. Every human being needs to be saved from the deadly wages of humanity's false hopes. This is why God the Son became the human being, Jesus. He is the Christ, the promised human Savior that none of us are and all of us need. No other religion or worldview takes this hope that God surrendered his glory and became one of us to save us. When we were hopeless and chose to hate him, God chose us and became one of us. Because this glorious God lived a human life of total virtue, he could die in our place paying for our sins in full. 
Because this glorious God was resurrected as a human being. History testifies to our future inheritance, Christian. Jesus is coming in glory with glory. You are being adopted into the family of God and will receive the inheritance of Jesus Christ. He's coming in glory with glory. See that now in Romans 8. It says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, adopted into his family. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If you take nothing else about heaven, it promises a lot of beautiful things. But the most important part of the inheritance of heaven is that we are heirs of God, relationship with him himself and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. With all creation, we're waiting eagerly, earnestly with our whole hearts for Jesus to come back and make all things new. We are not getting a shiny lake. We will inherit the sun. We will inherit God himself. So wait for your blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have seen that hope has consequences. We have seen that hope has a name. Let's finish now by considering how to walk with blessed hope. If you're not a Christian, can I encourage you There's no greater gift that you can receive this Christmas than the gift of hope in Christ. When Jesus returns, he's bringing happy salvation and righteous justice for those that hope in him. If your hope is Jesus, he will wipe your tears dry and your slate clean. But if you don't want him to be your savior, he won't be. If you don't want to inherit the sorrow and guilt of false hopes, friend, God's spirit is ready to wash you clean right where you sit. Hope in Jesus. And if you have questions, ask them. Confront hope in Jesus. God is not scared of your questions. And we would love to journey with you in those questions. I mean, I left a couple of books up there. There are a couple of Bibles at the back. Take them, genuinely. If you want to explore, because you've seen that your hopes may not be all they're cracked up to be. If you want to intellectually and spiritually, honestly question this faith, we would genuinely love to journey in that with you. But Christian, let's ask, how do we walk with blessed hope in Jesus coming again? And first, we need to know what God promises about our hope. Now, this is a unique uh, benefit of your hope, Christian. It's guaranteed. Your success in this life is not guaranteed. Your privilege, your pleasure is not guaranteed. Any other false hope is not. In fact, the only thing guaranteed in this life is death, which defeats all those false hopes anyway. But Jesus' promises are guaranteed. How? 
because he promised that he would defeat death by resurrecting from the grave, and he did it. And according to hundreds of eyewitnesses, that's a faith worth betting everything. By defeating the defeater of all false hopes, Jesus proved that he is the true hope. And at Pentecost, he gave us his Holy Spirit as a down payment on the relationship of everlasting life with God that we'll have in heaven. Then in the scriptures, the prophets and the apostles, they unpack that hope. I think it's put best by Paul here in Romans 15 when he says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Christian, look to the hopeful heavenly promises of the scriptures. They're guaranteed by the resurrection and by the spirit that dwells within you. And here are a few of those promises. For your ailing body, Christian, know that your physical body is guaranteed to be healed of all pain, sickness, and dysmorphia. Christian, if you've got harsh leaders at work, at home, or in government, know that you will be safe and loved under God's authority. Christian, overwhelmed by injustice, Know that people of every class and every ethnicity are guaranteed to live in unity and equality before God's throne. Christian, if you feel like your life is nothing but loss, know that you are guaranteed to receive much more in heaven with God than you ever gave up on this life for God. There are countless more promises. But if we remember false hopes with with dream boards and affirmations, How much more should we remind ourselves of and invoke the promises of hope that is true? Do that in prayer. Thank God for the promises he's already answered and ask God for more. Thank God and ask God for physical healing like we've seen in this church. Thank God and ask God for provision for those of us who can't provide for ourselves. Thank God, most importantly, and ask God for glorifying his name in us so that we would praise him like those Christmas angels. He is able and happy to perform his promises. So thank God for every little bit of heaven that you get to taste today and ask God for more of heaven and more of heaven and more of heaven until he gets us all of heaven here. In prayer, We partner with God in bringing the hope of heaven down. But also, wherever you can, Christian, perform the promises of God in the world. Healthcare workers, thank you for performing God's healing here on earth as it is in heaven. Those of you at UGM and 1018, thank you for serving the marginalized in our city. You perform God's justice on earth as it is in heaven. For those of you that are bearing your neighbor's burdens with them so that they don't have to walk through those things alone, thank you. You're performing God's love here on earth as it is in heaven. Now that said, there's one final unique piece of Christian hope we need to remember. It's about performing with God, not for him. Here's what I mean. With false hopes, your hope is only as secure as your ability to earn it. 
earn it and keep it. But Christian hope starts with the admission that we can't earn glory. Christians, we did not perform our way to God. He performed his way to us. And if, you, if you're like me, probably that's less tricky to fathom than the hanging on to that hope, the hanging on to that glory. Jacob, I get that I didn't earn relationship with God. I hear that in the pulpit every week. But God's given me a lot And if I squander all of this that he's entrusted me with, I can't help but be crushed by it. Christian, that is the opposite of the hope that God bought for you with his blood. We can't perform for him. We just want to walk with him. We give him our hearts and our lives, and we ask him to perform his love in us. We ask him to perform his love through us. We ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and pick us up where we fall. Christian, your false hopes demand your strength. But Christ is with you, the good news of it, in your weakness. Your hope is the great reversal, that the God of everything became nothing, so that you, when you have nothing to offer, when you have nothing in the tank, you receive his everything. We declare the same weak power as the Apostle Paul when he said three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this. That my weakness should leave me. But Jesus said to Paul, and he said unto you today, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Christian, repeat with Paul for the sake of Christ then that I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Proclaim this hope, Christian. Are you weak? Good. Your weakness brings you closer to God than your strength ever could. Hope in Jesus' power. Hope in his promises. Proclaim this hope to our dying and weary world this Christmas. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. He is true. He is glorious. He is coming. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Please. You are only hope. We have nothing else to bring, nothing else to offer. But the earnest desire, God, that heaven would come down. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.